You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. And welcome to another episode of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. This is episode 330. My name is Large William, and across the border from me, across many borders from me, although he uh, is from the borders that I'm within, is our dear, dear friend, fellow gent, fellow Canuck. Uh, he's been in South Korea for some time now, Ghetto Tim. Tim, how are you, my friend? I'm good, man. Thank you very much for uh, having me on the show, man. I... Uh... I appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. Hey, Tim, uh, sorry, I hear an echo on your end. Is there anything else you got turned up here, speaker-wise, or, or anything else? Here, let me put on my headphones, man. That might help. Sorry. That's okay. There, is that better? Um, let's see. I'm talking, and everything seems to be good. Little right. behind the curtains technical stuff. So there you go. But uh, yeah, so um, wonderful. And uh, of course, you haven't heard the dulcet tones of Sammy yet. Sammy couldn't be with us this morning. He uh, he had to work. He had an arm wrestling tournament that went late into the night last night, and uh, he's still recovering after that uh, trophy he won. So it's going to be Tim and I, and we're going to be talking about two films that uh, Timmer has programmed for us. Um, the first film is. Uh, 1995's Shinya Sukumoto film Tokyo Fist. Yep. And the second film is Tears of the Black Tiger from 2000. From uh, And you know what? Thai names are always <laughs> a minefield for me. Wisit Sasadantian. There you go. There it is. Yeah. So it's not, it's not any easier for me. <laughs> oh, it's tough. You just got to kind of roll through it um we're quickly going to talk about what we've been watching and then i'll uh as we um as we get into the films you're going to tell me why you've uh, programmed each one because i was very curious uh, as to why you picked okay. those two specific films so as we always do i'll defer to you what have you been watching lately my friend all right we're going to tear through this quickly uh 
recently I was on a trip to Thailand and I was on an island, Koh Chang. And uh, in the afternoons, it gets incredibly hot, so a lot of people like to hide in the confines of a bar. And I had a friend of mine that has a little place down there, and everyone was taking turns uh, picking something on YouTube to watch. So I decided uh, that I would uh, expose them to a little bit of the magic from one Mr. Uh, Albert Pyun. We watched uh, Nemesis. Nice. Yeah. Timmy Thomerson. I never get tired of that guy. I can watch him do anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, after that, I uh, when I got back, I watched uh, Citizen Four. Mm. That that was pretty eye opening. I wasn't expecting, you know, to find out any more than I already knew. But holy shit, man! <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like there's tinfoiled hats, and then there's that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Now the next one I watched might pique your interest. Because what if I was to tell you that there was a film with Fabio Testi and Michael Madsen. Oh, wow. Directed by one Mr. Uh, Tulane Blacktop, Monty Hellman. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's this film called Iguana. It's a 1988 film. And it's kind of, it's a period piece. It's almost like, you know, uh, The Elephant Man meets uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Holy cow. Because it's like a guy who has a deformity and he looks like an iguana and he's mistreated on this pirate ship and he finally, you know, winds up getting his revenge. And it's 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 a train wreck, but it's just amazing to watch, you know, uh, like I say, Testy and Madsen just do what they do, you know. It's cool because Hellman used Testy. He liked Testy, obviously, because he worked with him on China Nine Liberty 37 with uh, Warren Oates as well. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll watch anything Monty Hellman does, man. I don't care. I mean, you know, everybody has their highs and lows, right? You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the last, the next thing I watched was I watched uh, a documentary that I just did with uh, Morris and the CRC here podcast, uh, Blokes You Can Trust, about an Australian uh, punk rock band, the Cosmic Psychos. That's kind of fun. Uh, then I watched an old uh, 80s cult classic I saw years ago, and I was finally to, able to find another copy of it. It's called the... Uh, Riders of the Storm. It's this film. Uh, have you ever heard of this? I don't know if I have, man. What uh, Dennis Dennis Hopper and Michael Pollard? Oh, I don't know that I have. It's uh, they they play these old Vietnam War vets that steal this uh, B fifty seven bomber and they're flying over the United States and they're jamming all these broadcasts from uh, the White House and everything. And it's almost like a low, like a very, very low, like degrade version of uh, Doctor Strangelove, with a bunch of hippies, ex burned out uh, Vietnam vets flying a plane over, uh, like I say, over the United States, and basically trying to uh, tie up the government every way they can. Oh wow, that sounds cool, man. I've, I've, I haven't heard of that. I'll, I think I'd like to check that out. That's a kind of it's, a, it's an old it's it never went anywhere. It's hard to find, but I think you know where to find it if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, for sure. Um. Uh, then I watched uh, Robert Altman. Uh, Altman did a film called uh, Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or Sitting Bull's History Lesson. Yeah. With, with Paul Newman. And I don't care what anybody says. Uh, to me, Altman is probably the most prolific uh, American filmmaker, period. And diverse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, to me, he's kind of like the American Mike in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Because he he can do just about anything, and he you know he has no qualms feeling comfortable sitting in a chair and like with with all kinds of subject matter, you know. 
And uh, the last thing I watched was, oh, sorry, there's two things. I watched, uh, everybody talks about The Rock in wrestling, but to me there's only one rock, and that's the Roth Rock. Nice. So I finally, uh, you know, uh, kind of a guilty confession to make. I'd never seen it, so I sat down and watched Undefeatable. Oh, it's so fun. Oh, man. That dude looks like a combination of, like, Eric Bogosian and Judd Nelson. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that that film is just a complete blast. Oh, yeah. And the last the last thing I watched just uh, earlier this morning was I watched uh, Spring. Oh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. Everyone's, everyone's checking this one out. A lot of buzz about that. And I'm not going to say too much about it except that I think that for a double feature, it would really sit nicely along lines of something like Under the Skin or uh, Before Sunrise. Oh, wow. That's quite the varied. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But when you varied. see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, but it's it, it's uh, it mixes two kinds of genres that you, you know, that have been uh, tried before. But it's really effective. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I was going to try to check this one out at TIFF, but, you know, the numbers game didn't get a chance to. Sure, sure. Sure, I hear you. Oh, wow. And that's it. That's it, man. Very nice. Good week. Uh, I had a chance to revisit Dumbo on the big screen with my family last uh, Sunday. Um, Yeah, it was great, man. Oh, man. That film makes me cry like a little bitch. Yeah, it makes me cry, too, man. I watched it with my mom. Oh, that's, that's our film, right? So the, 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 the trunk, the trunk through the cage. You know? oh, oh man, it kills God. me. I might have even oh, mentioned this last week, but yeah, it, it, it oh, does God. slay me, man. It's it's a yeah, great I can't, one. I can't watch that, man. And that Et when he when Et yeah. gets sick, man, that's another oh. one that busts me up. I can't help it. Man. No, it's, it's just, true. It's so true, yeah. man. It's really yeah. great stuff. Yeah, that Disney stuff, man. Before Walt died, is something else. It's just really magical, as I've often said. Uh, then I did one that uh, I'd seen, you know, bits and pieces of one night. I was a bit distracted years ago. I want to say it was on Showcase or Bravo or something, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, Adam McGoyan's Exotica. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, as, now that I've, you know, become sort of older and had a more kind of discerning eye. But I have to say... I don't think it's as good as well as some people do. I don't. I, it doesn't. I don't love it as much as some people do. I think it feels very '90s, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of times great film, it can be of its time, but it has a bit of a timeless feel. This this feels very much of its time, but I think there's a lot of interesting things being said and going on that, that it, and themes that are going and visit. So it's it's a good one. Uh, there was a uh, a film that would run parallel to that that came out called Tales of the Blue Iguana. Did you I've heard of you know it? Yeah, yeah, with Sandro and uh, my girl Jennifer Tilly, and oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's and it's you know all takes place in the same kind of setting, and yeah, like both of them are really uh, you know well well done films. Yeah, no, certainly. I uh, decided to stay in Canada. I wanted to see more Canadian film this year, you know, stuff that mm-hmm. maybe fell through the cracks. So I I was watching sure. um, or rewatching uh, Denis Villeneuve's Maelstrom. Mm-hmm. So you know it's it's solid. You know he's he's gone on to become a much better filmmaker. Not to discredit this film, but early in the filmography, certainly I think it might have even been his first. So yeah, interesting. Again, uh, I think it's two thousand. So there's still some of that bleed over from the nineties. Um, then one I watched with my boys because they were on March break. Just had to throw it on a whim, see if it grabbed them. Was it was a Czech animated film from nineteen fifty eight called Creation of the World. Hmm. This is, I think, up your alley. It's a real mind melter. Um, it's kind of, it feels like it was, the, you know, the cartoonists were into LSD. It, it's just, 
you know, it's about God creating the world with angels and devils and stuff. And uh, although there's sort of that religious backdrop, it, it's it's really kind of fantastic to see how. What was that? Would it would it fall along the lines of something like Allegro non troppo? Yeah, yeah, I would say that's a fair comparison. I actually liked it more than Allegro, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, huh. yeah, it, it was solid, man. Really cool. Uh, really cool. Huh. Really cool. I liked it a lot. Um, then it was my wife's turn to pick a movie for movie night. I had never seen Little Mermaid. None of us had except her. I was the wrong age when it came out. You know, timings, everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was fine. I, you know, it's it's definitely lower tier Disney for me. A lot of people really dig it. Um, I don't know. It's uh, it was okay. You know, uh, there's much better sort of uh, female lead Disney films than that. Alice in Wonderland's the, the the queen of the hill for me with uh, with Disney. Oh, there's so many good female uh, lead uh, Disney films, but that one, you know, kind of middle of the road for me. Um, then me and the boys did. Superman, Shazam, Bla- uh, I think it's called The Return of Black Adam. It's a little short film, you know, these uh, DC kind of introductory animated things they do about 30 minutes long. This was cool, you know. Um, my kids don't haven't seen a whole lot of uh, Captain Marvel or Black Adam or any of that stuff on screen. So, you know, it was, uh, it was good, you know, nice and quick and dirty. Um, then William wanted to stay up with me and watch a Marx Brothers one I picked up from the library I, I'd like to see more Marx Brothers this year. I've only seen maybe oh, man. two or three. And we watched the day absolute of the races. Absolute favorites. Oh yeah, absolute favorites, man. Yeah, Those they're, guys are just they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the best lines ever was uh you know, there was one when uh Harp I mean uh, Groucho was uh, a hotel clerk and he says something to this guy's wife and he says uh, the wife says, uh, did you hear what uh, this guy just said to me? The guy says, how dare you? Groucho says, did you marry this woman? He says, well, I certainly did. He says, well, how dare you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're, they're great. The energy, oh, yeah. they're just the wit. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, man, it's so on point. I think the older I get, the more I feel like comedy of that era, sort of 20s to, f- say, 50s, because become my favorite. I mean, I'm all for, you know, a good kind of dick joke and – yeah, yeah. Some gross out stuff, but I just feel like it was it was smart and it was still fierce and really funny and Oh yeah. Um I love them, man. I, I think the Marx Brothers are awesome. Uh, William hung with it, man. Like it's an hour almost two hours, an hour and fifty minutes just shy of. But um, they've got a lot of physical they've got a they lot do. of physical stuff that would, you know, pull kids in too as well. Yeah. I totally. mean espe- especially, you know, like uh Harpo, you know what I mean? Big it's just time. Yeah, yeah. Big time. Yeah. So, yeah, and you know Chico and or Chico. How does he say yeah. Chico or Chico? Because I've heard Chico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard of Chico because he was into the ladies. So, uh, yeah. you know, they're all great, man. They all bring their own kind of element to it. And um, yeah, I, I highly recommend if people have been holding off on comedy of oh, that era, man. you know, or even earlier Keaton and Chaplin stuff. It's it's the best, man. It's really good stuff. Um, then. Uh, we went to the theater yesterday. So the, our, the Cineplexes have this thing here, which is our local chain in Canada, our big chain. And they have a thing where Saturday mornings they have family favorites for three bucks. And uh, as luck would have it, I was off yesterday, which was a rarity. You know, Two or three times a year I'm off on a Saturday. And I wanted to see what was playing, being March break. And um, Fantastic Mr. Fox was playing. Ah. So, yeah, we were there, man. And I have to say, you know... I love that film. It made my top 10 the year it came out, but seeing it on the big screen, I mean, it really, really wowed me. My kids loved it. It's so good, man. It is mm-hmm. so good. 
Like yeah. it's it's nine plus for me, man. I really love it. I think it just it's it's fantastic because the title. Well, every, everybody always feels that Anderson, you know, he has to kind of, you know, a lot of people think that he, he only works well when he's stuck within the confines of an ensemble cast, but. You know, I'd say all contraire. I mean, he's he's shown that you know he can kind of step outside of his comfort zone. Oh yeah, he absolutely has. I mean, he does work well with ensembles, certainly. But I mean, he made this stop motion, you know, kids yeah. film. Well, yeah. not even. I don't know if it's kids film per se, but a film that adults and kids can equally enjoy, which is a much more difficult thing than it would you would think. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, kudos to him. I mean, you you know, you see some of these directors. Uh, like him and Soderbergh and, you know, a lot of directors that um, it's it's early in the morning, so it escapes me some other names, but they, no. they, they use well, the like, medium. Like Linklater, you know, with Linklater, Waking Life, yeah. Waking Life and Scanner Darkly and a lot of the, a lot of the different things that he did. It was still yep. him. Yep. But he uh, he just basically took it off in, in, a, in a different direction entirely. You know? Absolutely. They keep it sharp by by really you know, allowing the medium to be malleable and, you know, really stretching what it can do. So yeah, mm-hmm. great stuff. If you haven't seen Mr. Fox, fantastic Mr. Fox, you've got to go see it. Uh, then we watched a short. It was on the cartoon network. They wanted, the kids wanted to see it. Batman beleaguered Lego Batman. It just a little short where, you know, Lego Batman joins the, um, justice league. It's got Batmite, So, you know, lots of shenanigans, fun little thing, uh, quick and dirty. And then I finished the night. Everyone was in bed. The wife was out. Uh, with a Paolo Cavera giallo that I'd never seen called Plot of Fear. And um, for those that aren't familiar with Paolo Cavera's name, he was one of the guys that did the Mondo Cane films with Jacopetti. Right. And this one's interesting. It's not great, but it is good. But what's interesting about it is a lot of the fixations that he must have had when he made the uh, Mondo Cane films, um, you can see here sort of the racism... Uh, exploitation of people of, of the less fortunate by the fortunate um, animals being exploited, uh, sexual curiosities. Um, there's uh, and there's also sort of this paranoid element with technology and how it's um, more invasive and pervasive in our lives. So a lot of big ideas. It's it's a good one, not as great as some of the ideas maybe would indicate, but it's worth everyone's time. I'd say and Rero put out a good disc for it. So. Yeah, that uh, that was my week. So, pretty nice. good week all in all. Um, we are going to take a short break, and we which one do you want to talk about first, my friend? Whatever you want to do, brother. I insist, as the guest, which one? Okay. Uh, you tell uh, me, let's look at let's look at Tokyo Fist. Okay, cool. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk about some Sukumoto. In the ring. We'll be right back. The following message is a paid advertisement for the Cult of Muscle podcast. The Cult of Muscle. You're either in it or you're dead. It's the dawning of a new age. The halls of Valhalla have been shuttered. The heroes of yore have either retreated to the shadows or taken to capering for the amusement of the small folk. Their past glory is a distant memory. The barbells have been torn from their once puma-strong grips. The beards shone from their square jaws, only to be transplanted onto flannel-clad, puny weaklings with fingers barely powerful enough to strum a ukulele. The time has come, my brothers, to restore order from the chaos. No longer will our heroes be forgotten. No longer will their great deeds be viewed through a foggy lens of irony. 
Hear now our rallying cry as we scream it from the mountaintops, as we bellow it from iTunes and Limson and Facebook. It's time to join the cult, my brothers. So don your cloaks and enter the cult of muscle. First up this evening is a film that um, I'm very curious to hear why you picked this film. It's 1995's Shinya Tsukamoto Jam Tokyo Fist. Let's uh, let's hear why you picked this one. Oh well, I uh, I think for a lot of people in the vicinity of Toronto, or even not just Toronto, but I mean people that were kind of uh, in on uh, the festival circuit in the early 90s. People were exposed to Tetsuo, had their minds blown through the back of their heads with his debut, and then uh, Tetsuo 2, The Body Hammer. And everyone wondered, you know, where Tsukamoto was going to go from there. And he ventured into the world of boxing. And I caught this, the uh, Toronto Midnight Madness back in the 90s. And I was absolutely just fucking floored by this film. And it just, it was literally, you know, it's so funny because the last film that I was on for here, you know, um, whatchamacallit, uh, Clean Shaven. And, you know, it was another one of those experiences where, you know, you just felt completely battered by the end of this film. And I have to say that Tsukamoto, to me, He's like the Japanese brother from another mother, David Cronenberg. It's funny you say that because rewatching this film, I feel Cronenberg, but I also feel Lynch in spots. Uh huh. Uh huh. But I think I say Cronenberg because strictly because that both of them through their entire careers had this compulsion and fascination about metamorphosis. Yes. About cha- the change, whether it be mental, whether it be physical psychological the entire uh transformation of the being that's what both of them had basically made an entire career of and you know when i had first after you know seeing tetsuo one and two i thought 
you know, and then I'd heard, you know, through rumors and before the Internet. I mean, you know, we just used to get Film Threat magazine or, you know, you'd hear bits and pieces coming through the pipe in newspapers or other things like that. And I'd heard Sukumoto was going to do a boxing film. But I thought, boxing? What the f-? You know? Yeah. Ah. But then you see it and it's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I get it now. So, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's definitely a boxing film unlike any other. Mm. But, you know, this film is so, I mean, we're going to get into it, but it's so, uh, I should say that, it, you know, it starts off with just an average salary man living kind of, you know, day by day with his girlfriend and their kind of hive-like existence, you know, in uh, the Japanese prefectures. And their lives are kind of turned upside down by um, the introduction of an old classmate who basically turns what was, you know, um, a dual relationship into, you know, I wouldn't say it was a love angle, but um, there is a relationship that that becomes warped between these three people that totally, completely gets out of hand very quickly. Yes. Now, one thing I wanted to say right off the get-go is that Tsukamoto does an amazing balancing act here because he not only directs this film, he actually stars as the lead. And we also have Tsukamoto's brother, who's playing his rival, his younger classmate. So there's almost this meta element to this film as well that's yeah. kind of uh, really twisted in the sense that you've got these two brothers and the movie's about competition after the same girl. So it almost kind of falls back to Cronenberg again with, like, Dead Ringers. Yeah, and it also, I think, you know, you mentioned metamorphosis, but how obsession or fixation drives metamorphosis sometimes. Oh, absolutely. That's that's a huge, huge part of that with this. Now, I wanted to say something that's kind of funny is uh, lately, you know, not to plug any other podcast, but I've been listening to uh, the Gilbert Godfrey podcast incessantly recently and the one thing that came into my mind watching this film is is it just me or did Sukamoto just look like Gilbert Godfrey yeah I could see that a little bit I never I never <laughs> thought that before I know but I didn't but because yeah. I've been listening to the podcast you, know, you look at him and you're going yeah, man that looks like and, yeah, yeah, and he's so he's so small and he's kind of like that really kind of you know timid guy and he's you know, he's not the guy that you would expect to explode and, you know, and, you know. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So um, this film, I got to say that uh, I guess we should give a plot synopsis or I already did is, you know, it's basically a triangle and uh, it all basically uh, revolves around a boxing ring or boxing as kind of a means of, of settlement, violence as a means of, of settlement in terms of emotions and issues and uh, everything that goes on with that. But, I mean, what what's your impression, Will, right off the get-go about uh, Tokyo Fist? Well, um, yeah, I mean, you've, you've certainly hit on some of it. I think one of the things that, you know, one of the reasons I'm glad you picked the film is I feel like, uh, mid to late 90s Asian film and Japanese, certainly, uh, specifically within the confines of Asia, I think sometimes are harder to come by and get overlooked when people think about um, 
film because at the time internet wasn't as prevalent in our day to day lives. So right. film, you couldn't order a lot of the films. It was it was it was harder to get our hands on all these films. So by the time we were using internet to order things in Amazon and this and that and other the other ordering services and Yes Asia, um, a lot of these films had gone out of print or you know they'd kind of slipped from the forefront of people's minds. Right. So I'm glad you. Um, I'm glad you picked it for just for that reason alone, um, because I'd seen a few Sukumoto films around the same time, early 2000s. I would guess around mm-hmm. I was a little later than the game than you were, certainly maybe 2002. Snake, Snake in June. I'm a big fan of Snake in June. Yeah, big yeah. fan of Snake in June. Yeah. I think it's it's really fantastic, and again, obsession. I think a lot of his films really deal with obsession and fixation, and oh, yeah. at, at any cost, and the the metamorphosis, whether it's physical. Um, it's internal, external. Um, I think there's a lot being said uh, with his films. I feel like too, though, he kind of gets. Um, <clears throat> for me, he, I sometimes I feel like he gets a bit lost in the shuffle with other filmmakers that worked around the same time, and especially some of the guys that are at the forefront now of a really intense Japanese cinema. You know, Mike and Sono and right. Nakashima and. Uh, right. And even the um, guy who preceded him, Gakurayu Ishii, who did like Blast, I think it's Blast City? Yeah, Blast City, right. Yeah, right. I think similar filmmaker, you know, in terms of kind of a punk rock energy to their films. Oh, yeah. An oh, industrial yeah. kind of energy to their films. Right. <clears throat> you know, I think Ishii's kind of a, an uncle to him in some ways, it feels like, a spiritual uncle. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, even the way the film's shot uh it, it's it kind of up close it feels very handheld and at times even almost like like eight millimeter or something you know in terms of the film stock just kind of intense man on right. the street right. shooting in your face just kind of going right. for it right which but there's a mi- there's a mix of that with like <clears throat> a complete mix of that with the total 80s blue neon there is a lot of that and that blue filter is oh yeah uh, is you know very prevalent early on in the film and i think there's a lot of different colors that he uses color well. He'll he'll saturate scenes in colors as well to convey things, and whether it's a cold kind of disconnect, because I think we see a lot of that that blue stuff in um, in like the high rise, like the high of existence, as you said, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, and um, the one thing I want to say about this that it's kind of um, you know living in Asia and seeing you know the way that people get on here is that you you have to understand that you know i mean obviously a lot of people know that it's a very kind of different existence you know in and in, in asia and people could say that you know uh globally we we share emotions and feelings and and the way we understand things but specifically in asia there's this real kind of uh concept of of keeping everything below the surface you're not really supposed to exude any true emotion you know you're not yep. supposed to kind of give away anything of who you really are because you're more concerned with keeping harmony keeping social kind of uh you know balance and for you to kind of come out and kind of really open yourself up is is, is considered a huge selfish act and it's considered a faux pas in yep. many ways and the only way that these people do this is by drinking and when people go out and drink after work or people just you know hair the dog and that's when everybody lets their hair loose and everything all starts to come out 
And a lot of times it, it, it causes a lot of a lot of conflict because, you know, people just keep too much under the surface and it bubbles up and you can't control it anymore. And I think that's a big part of this film is I think that a big part of this film is repression. And I think it's, it's trying to, you know, communicate the anger of, of repression. And I think it's uh, the concept of trying to just kind of, you know, control your your uh your raw feelings or, or realizing that you just let them go. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely correct. And I also feel like, again, as, as most Japanese filmmakers do, I think there's always, whether it's observation or commentary on society for the very reasons you've just said, um, you know, competition, uh, when, you know, sort of, identity, Identity, lack of identity, anonymity, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, all of these things are, are really evident in the film, too. And it's done in like a, the reason I said Lynch is sort of this Lynchy, feverish kind of surrealism early before we start to see more of a Cronenberg feel. So, yeah, it was funny that I got I got both those guys, too. And, you know, it's certainly very frenetic uh, at times and I end with its editing and um, like I said, some of the intensity, which, again, I think is testament to the lifestyle and culture in some of the bigger cities in Japan. Right. You know, and I think, you know, like somebody like, uh, loaf wouldn't be able to watch this film because I think there's too many quick movement. cuts in it. He, he would just be sick to his stomach. And I mean, the one thing that I think is funny with, you know, Tsukamoto is at sometimes with the soundtrack, he almost, uh, matches all the shots to the soundtrack, the, the, the pace of the music he matches it all up like, like like there's times when it just goes by so fast, all the shots. And that's almost like they're keeping keeping a beat just like the music is. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And, that's, that's that's so true. And that's why I said the editing is, is fantastic. Right. You know, like, I mean, the opening of this film is amazing. It's one of my favorite sounds. Like, you know, you can hear somebody hitting a heavy, I mean, you know, hitting a, a speed bag. At the beginning, and it's just like, but that's actually the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. But the but the way he plays it, it sounds like somebody just hammering a speed bag at the beginning, and it goes right into the film with that sound. And I think that's amazing. Like it's just the way that he kind of you know weaves in and out with the visuals and with all the the soundtrack and everything else with it. Yeah, he does a really good job. It seems kind of seamless, seamless, and just kind of. A frenzy, but it's this orchestrated frenzy by design, I think. Right. Um, I feel like, too, you can tell, I think, with most of Tsukamoto's films, you know, another filmmaker I really get a vibe from that he must love because of his fixation with obsession is Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. Even with yeah. something like Snake of June, it feels very Hitchcocky to me in spots. But um, I think, yeah, identity, you know, the body horror thing, the obsession – um, and even I think, feel like he's a guy that just loves film in general. Like I think we see a, a quick snippet of Metropolis on the screen, don't we? Here, right? Yeah, yeah. When he's him, uh, Suda and his girlfriend are sitting there watching, uh, watching. Uh, yeah, they're watching uh, Metropolis. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think you know he's a guy that sometimes he fits that stuff in organically into his film. And you can kind of, I always think it's interesting to see which Western filmmakers have influenced um, uh, Japanese and Chinese filmmakers. Right. Now, there's one, 
one thing that's really got me too that I don't know why, but I mean, after watching this several times, I had a feeling that I don't know if Sukamoto was influenced by him, but I had a feeling of like uh, the writer Yukio Mishima. Oh, because yeah, 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 yeah. The, the idea of the homo homoeroticism that mm -hmm. Mishima wrote about, you know, and the idea of, you know, uh, changing the self and breaking down the self and, you know, the things that you detested about yourself and, and to become, you know, just the absolute perfect being that you can be. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of themes that Mishima wrote about that you can kind of pick out in this film. That's, that's kind of like what I got from it. Uh, yeah, and I think too the there's the purity of of the physical pursuit or that you know what I mean. There's something right, right, very, right. very Mishima yeah. about that as well. Right, so. and there's a there's a point when uh, Suda's girlfriend, uh, you know, when she uh, Hirazu or Hiziru, she says uh, to Kojima, she says, "Are you gay?" Because yeah. he's so he's so compelled, he's so obsessed with Suda. Like the two of them are just looking at each other like they hate each other's guts, but at the same time, it's almost like they're just enamored with each other. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I know. There's this, this, and, it, it, and I cannot describe it with words, but there's an animal intensity that these two guys, every time they get in the same room and they're just looking at each other, and it's almost like two lions just ready to basically go, go at each other, you know, to declare dominance. You know, like it's... You know, you know, you really feel that Tsukamoto, man, he, he makes your asshole pucker sometimes in some scenes yeah, where does. you're just watching these guys just like, oh, fuck off when they when they're when they're going to get ready to go. It ain't going to be pretty. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, too, <clears throat> in tied in with some of the technical stuff with the film uh, and the the soundtrack or score, um I love uh, the sound design in the film. Like I feel like the punches, you feel the kind of the raw intensity. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of the punches, I mean, it's really great. Right, uh, and it, you know, so it sounds like you know when going back to like Stallone and Rocky when he's just taking rounds out of those sides of beef. Yeah, and it just yeah. sounds like you can hear them smacking, you know, smack each other, and and you know, and I think this is this is the one thing is like you know. No kidding. This this is a brutal, brutal film physically, and you know, I mean, with the sound and everything, it, it's just it's just a total full on experience. But the one thing that Sukamoto does is, um, you know, he over exaggerates all of the violence in the boxing ring. Yes. Where when when guys get plowed, you literally see like you know, well, initially. I was going to say, when you see the first punch in the beginning of the film, it takes me back to uh, Ringo Lamb, full mm -hmm. contact, right yeah. through the head. Yeah, that's right. You know? And then there's there's other bits where <laughs> you're seeing guys getting blasted right, right in the face. It's almost like UFC type shit where, you, you know, you can literally almost see a guy's, you know, orbital lobe just start to crack and hang out. And like you, you see guys squirt and it's, you know, and a lot of it's almost like a Shogun Assassin. Yeah. Some of, it is you know, arterial. It, yeah, and, and I think Sukumoto over exaggerates all of it because you know he if he if he wasn't to do that if he was to basically put the sound in, and I think it would be a lot more intense. I think if he hadn't had any of the the blood or any of the over exaggeration, I think that it would have been more. It, it would have been too much. 
because I, with go, go ahead, ahead. sorry no no I, I jumped in there too soon go ahead no i think with just the sound that in itself is just like you get it you feel it you know yeah and, no he definitely does and i feel like he does that he over exaggerates it to really clarify how it feels to these people whether that's what actually sure. happens or not to feel the intensity of it feels like my head's being split open when this guy punches. Sure, 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 absolutely. You know, and it's like when you used to watch the old cartoons with Popeye and Bluto, and when Bluto would smack Popeye, and you see the stars flying around <laughs> in his head with the little singing birds and yeah. shit like that, you know, like, cuckoo, cuckoo, you know. But yeah. when these guys are getting hit, I mean, when Sukamoto gets hit, and you see, like, literally almost half his teeth come flying out of his mouth, and I mean, like some of the, there, you know, some of the mouth trauma in this film is just like Jesus, like, oh, you know, it just makes you wince, you know. It just, you know, it, it's just unbelievably how these guys just go at each other to disassemble, to break each other down, just piece by piece by piece, and it's almost like they're like chisels, you know, going at a, a giant chunk of marble. That they're just they're just trying to whittle each other down to just powder to nothingness, you know. Yep. And it's no, it's know. insane. It's, true. it's insane. And I think that, you know, there to me, um, we we should talk about uh the girl that's in between the two of them, you know. Yes. Uh Hizuru. She she actually changes herself as well. She does. And she, and she starts getting into body mod. And she starts getting into it, and that's her way of communicating, you know, what she feels that she can't say or what she can't express. You know, she, she finds that she's, she's delving deeper into, you know, altering her physical self as a means of coming to terms kind of with her mental self, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it brings up a thing of like almost like a chicken or the egg. Is boxing therapy for people or is it coaxing right. – something out of us sort of primordial and base and you know i think yeah there's a lot of interesting things um he's saying here and using boxes right. the the sandbox I, for it, discussing think about this for a second what if what if you were to look at it like boxing as drug addiction where yeah. you know the idea that you know that the ring the boxing was either used to kind of you know release yourself forget yourself or, or it was basically used as a means of just, you know, being able to just tear yourself away from all of the things that hold you back, you know, that mm -hmm. a, a lot of, you know, everybody has different reasons that they do drugs, I mean, and, and drink. And a lot of people, you know, they drink to forget themselves, but then a lot of people, you know, they drink to find themselves. Yeah. But the problem is, is that, you know, the deeper you get into it, it's like you said, the chicken or the egg, it's like, you know, you know, it. Is your identity the drug, or is the drug your identity? You know. Yep. Oh no, definitely. And, you definitely get that I, sense. And I think that's what it is: is that the deeper, the more they get into the boxing ring, and I think they use it as a means of communicating too. And it's a, you know, it's it's a means of you know debasing themselves. That this is this is what's incredible is I think that you know these guys think they're building themselves up in the ring. When actually what they're doing is they're breaking themselves down inside. Yep. That it's not it's not just a physical breakdown by being having the shit knocked out of you by another guy. You're actually breaking yourself down inside. You're breaking your soul. You're breaking your spirit. You're breaking your identity. Everything everything is being dismantled. Yeah, and then again the flip side, uh, or are you finding your soul, finding your identity? 
right. through 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 stripping it down and sort of distilling it. This purity of violence. Yeah, no, it's it is very interesting. I think too, one of the things that Sukumoto and a lot of Japanese filmmakers do well. Um, and you see it's very evident here is the way they kind of shoot low to the ground when there's the exterior stuff where like the, the buildings seem even taller, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of give people even a smaller feel in the city. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to say, I think, you know, because we've got to wrap up this review here in a minute is Sukamoto, uh, you know, kudos to him for the dedication. Like when he's working that speed bag, he's working that speed bag. Oh man, uh, he really committed to this, man. This was something that you got to give it up to him for um, investing something in this, physically and otherwise. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And there's, you know, I mean, you know, my love for extreme film and films left to center, but there's moments in this film that made me literally like turn away, like or just wince, like I, I. Like, for example, in particular, there's a scene near the end and no spoilers or anything, but where uh, Tsukamoto gets into kind of a domestic uh, quarrel with his uh, girlfriend underneath an overpass and she literally beats his face in. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, a bit where she says, come on, we should get going. And he's just sitting there laying up against a pillar and his face just looks like ground beef and he smiles at her. And when he's smiling at her, it's the most disgusting thing you could ever see. It's just like a caved-in pumpkin with teeth, and he's just grinning at her. And I'm just like, oh, Jesus, man, I can't look at this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, I know. It was so there's that, there, There's that, and then there's a bit with a nipple piercing. Oh, man. Yeah. That was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, big time. And, uh, you know, one thing I found interesting about your two films this week was that both were kind of, whether through actual sort of love triangles or want of a love triangle, both films kind of have love triangles of sorts. Yeah, yeah, sure. In a way, Absolutely. you know, they both yeah. have this longing and and right. uh, the sort of the bromance. Uh, but what's funny in both of them is that, you know, all, all the parties involved really don't understand what's all at stake. You know, I mean, like, you know, with Tokyo Fist, you know, Tsukamoto doesn't quite understand how she looks at him. And and then his, you know, his rival doesn't understand how, you know, he looks at Tsukamoto. Like all of them are looking at each other and they don't quite understand all of it. Like they don't quite know the rules of the game. Yeah. In both, in both instances, you know, both films. Yeah. But, no, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, let's get into make or breaks, MVTs and scores. What uh, What's your uh, make or break? Okay. I would say that the beginning of the film is is make or break because it's like, you know, he dives right in full force and, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of space. Like this is a slow moving film. There's, you know, it, it's not dialogue heavy, but Sukamoto takes his time getting to where he, he wants to get to. And I think but right at the beginning, you know, you kind of get a little taste of the intensity of what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, that's the make or break, you know. And yeah. for the the MBT, I would say I'd love to give it to the photography because there's some beautiful shots in this film. I mean, like when he does high speed with the clouds over Tokyo, you know, and uh, there's bits where it's just so uh, frigid and metallic. I mean, oh, it's yeah. just it's just so cold. Like he, you know, the way he uses the colored lenses and just the high speed and 
just there's just stills of you know where Sukumoto's like a ghost and he's just roaming through Tokyo and he's just aimless and he's just lost his soul and you don't you know don't know where he's at. I mean, for me, the photography is my MVT. Yes. And uh, um, for a score, I'll wait till you you do yours. Go sure. ahead. Okay, so my make or break is also the beginning. It gives us kind of a statement of intent and. You know, it shows just the intensity of the film and the commitment of the film. Uh, I really like that. My MVT is Sukimoto. I feel like he put a lot into this film of him. He asked a lot of himself, both mentally and physically, and because of both of those, emotionally. So mm-hmm. he's my MVT. Uh, he pulls a Daniel Day-Lewis in this one, man. Yeah, he really does, man. He goes for it. Um, yeah. And then uh, my score is a 7.5 out of 10. I think it's a great <laughs> film, uh, you know, very good film. Um, that, you know, it's evident that it was a lower budget film, but it never feels cheap. Uh, it always feels no. like he uses the lack of budget to make it more raw, more personal, more intense, more kind of in your face and more unglamorous and stripped down in the best possible way. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would, I'd say that's a great score, man. You know, and I mean, I encourage people out there to seek this film out. And, I mean, a lot of people might, you know, there have been arguments in the past, criticisms that, you know, the violence is just aimless and that, you know, there's no purpose to this film aside from watching two guys beat the high holy hell out of each other. But I, I disagree completely. I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said here. And, you know, I mean, the violence isn't glorified in this at all. It's actually sickening. And it really, you know... By the end, man, you're just completely wiped out and exhausted. The last thing you want to do is sit down and, and watch anything really that's uh, over, over, uh, over violent. And I, and on Sukumoto, to me, this film really, really spoke to me. I mean, seeing it in the theater with a cranked up stereo and just larger than life was just like, you know, your your head going right through the back of a theater seat, man. It was just, it was just incredible. So I, I I'd want to give this film an eight. That's what nice. I say. Yeah, about an eight. Very but I, nice. again, I encourage people to see this, but not while you're eating. I wouldn't yeah. sit down with a pizza and watch this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, all right, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to we're gonna go south to uh, Thailand. So we'll be right back. Hello, this is Kenny B. This is Tom KW. And we are two of the hosts from the Podcast on Fire Network. You want Asian cinema in a podcast? Well, we got the solution for you. Because at the Podcast on Fire Network, there's seven plus shows for you to choose from. You want Hong Kong action cinema and audio commentaries? We got that. You want dirty Hong Kong cinema? We got that. You want the eternal question, what's Korean cinema answer? We'll answer that. The flagship show Podcast on Fire covers classic Hong Kong cinema. Everything from Bruce Lee to Jackie Chan, John Woo and Jet Li. Featuring in-depth discussions with an aura of fun. This is your primary stop in the podcast world for classic Hong Kong cinema. So join me, Kenny B and Tom KW and a cast of thousands at podcastonfire.com. Also available on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio and Come chat with us on the Podcast on Fire Network Facebook group and on Twitter at Podcast on Fire. Podcast on Fire Network. It's Asian cinema in a podcast.
are back. We're going to take a trip five years forward from 1995, which 20 years ago, man. Can you believe? Oh, uh, don't even, this? don't even get me going. Don't man. even get me going. <laughs> 20 years, but now we're going to go 15 years back, and we're yeah. going to uh, talk about a film, Tears the Black Tiger. That, um, again, I'd like to know why you picked it, and we'll get into it here. All right. Now, first off, I want to say now I'm going to get this straight. I got to say this, man. This film was directed by Wissit Sassanatiang. There it is. Yeah, Sassanatiang. <laughs> now, uh, actually, the Thai film, the Thai title of this film is The Heaven Strike the Thief. Oh, wow. That's poetic. And, yeah, well, the whole film is very poetic. We'll get into it. Now, I had read about this film in 2000. Uh, when I was over here, I, you know, actually, I, I was in Thailand when a local newspaper had printed that this film was actually coming out to kind of uh, premiere and as a showcase for uh, young Thai filmmakers, what they were capable of doing. Because primarily before this, a lot of them were just doing TV and commercials and that kind of thing. Yeah, to give and people actually, context. Sorry, Tim, to give people context, the Thai film sort of new wave boom of – on back and all these action films and then the art house stuff hadn't really come back yet or hadn't, oh, no. hadn't hit yet. So this, no, no. Was, this was ahead of the curve by a couple of years. Actually, this was the first film that was accepted from Thailand at cons. There you go. So um, I'd read about it and I, it sounded interesting and they described it as a psychedelic Thai Western. And I thought, okay, you know, whatever. So then in 2001, I'm at the Puchan uh, Fantastic Film Festival, and there's an all-nighter. So I'm sitting there, and it was four films. And this is what I sat through. First, it was a film called Series 7, The Contenders. Oh, yeah. Then it, then it was Requiem for a Dream. Oof. And then it was Wild Zero. Oh, wow. And then it was this. Holy cow. So, so this was at 4 a.m. So I was already shot. And I mean, I was barely keeping my eyes open, you know, when this film came on. And all of a sudden, man, when this film came on at 4 a.m., the whole theater it was like somebody just doused you with a bucket of ice water, you know? Yeah. And everybody was just like, "What the holy shit, man!" Like it just, it just, this came over everybody just like a complete, like you know, psychedelic melted crayon experience. Like it was <laughs> unbelievable, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I should say that. By all rights, Tears of the Black Tiger, um, it's a blender drink. To, to, to explain to the people that have never heard of this film, it, it's a blender drink of so many different genres, and by all rights, it shouldn't work. I mean, there's elements of Bollywood in it. There's elements of Peckinpah, Wild Bunch in it. There's elements of traditional uh, high West, Westerns, Douglas Sirk in it. Uh, I get elements of uh, of uh, what's his name um, Canadian Guy Madden Leone Leone uh, man there, there there's just so many like I say so many different aspects are uh, uh, Johnny Guitar I totally Roy, totally got a Johnny Guitar vibe yeah Roy Rogers I mean like there's so like it's just a blender drink of so many different genres and like I say by all rights the film shouldn't work but it does. And it just and it just it's amazing how they were able to just incorporate all these things and just, you know, it's almost like, you know, like a Thai soup, like a Tom Yum Gong, 
where they mix the pineapple and the coconut milk and the and the chicken and the peppers and everything and they just, and it just comes out brilliant and you know and when you're watching all these things go into it at first when you hear people describe this film you're going wait a minute you just said it was a western a minute ago and now you're saying it's a musical yeah and, and then you're saying now you're saying it's pack and pot like what the hell man it can't be all these things like it's a mess right it's like no, right. no 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 it's not you know oh very true yeah. Very true. And I think this is another one that, like we had said, the last one falls into the fell into the cracks and lost in the oh, shuffle yeah. with a lot of well, people. This film became a victim of Miramax. Harvey, Harvey it, and his yeah. brother got a hold of this and they sat on it and buried it. And then finally it was Magnolia Pictures that eventually released it years later. But um, with the uncut version. But it was playing throughout Europe and uh, throughout Asia at film festivals in early 2000. And then finally, I think it was only until about maybe 2006 or 2007 that it was finally released by Magnolia. And the Miramax got off their ass and let it go. But, oh, man, it's a real shame, too, because, you know, it's so criminal that this film hasn't had a wider reach. Because, man, I know every person I've shown this film to has absolutely loved it. And that's yeah. that's an anomaly in itself because you know usually whenever I show people films it's fifty fifty. Some people are saying yeah man I dig that. And other people are like yeah it's not my thing you know. But but everybody I've shown this film to there's something in it that they've just absolutely loved. And talking about films that are crying out for a Blu-ray release. Oh man, this on <laughs> Blu-ray. I mean holy shit man. Like we're talking we're talking Speed Racer. Yeah, like this, it would look it, it would this, look insane. This is kind of right up there along the way, like the, with Speed Racer, with those just insane like candy apple reds, and oh, uh, it's it's just insane. Yeah, I agree. So, so I guess you know what the the whole core of this film is is almost like you know, uh, it's like a standard Shakespeare tale mm-hmm. of you know of kind of you know tragic love. Where it, it starts out, you know, with a, a guy who's the Black Tiger, who is the the most uh, amazing uh, gunman in Thailand. Yeah. And and he winds up running with a gang that's being pursued by the military and by the local police. But he's also in love with a with a girl who's on the good side of the tracks. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't quite understand why he's kind of uh, gone bad. You know, she yeah. doesn't get it. Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, one thing I wanted to say is that uh, one thing that's kind of a real shame, too, is that this film harkens back to, you know, in the 50s and 60s in Thailand, they they the theaters were packed. Mm-hmm. And they used to show a lot of dramas and a lot of westerns. And they did their variation on, you know, John Ford. They did their variation on the American western. And, I mean, the Philippines did the same. Yes. And, and what's really funny is like when you talk to like Andrew Leavold, you know, when he did the search for Wang Wang, Andrew will tell you that, you know, the Filipinos, they actually put their own spin on classic American cinema. And the, the Thais did the same. But the problem is, is that today all those old films are just seen as garbage. And they're I lost mean, with, a lot of them, too, because of the right, and a lot of them. Absolutely. They're lost. And but they're not really appreciated by you know younger audiences, younger generations, which is a shame. So I mean, uh, Sasanatiang, when he made this film, he wanted to make it you know as a kind of tribute to the films of the past in Thailand 
and to do it in a way that would kind of bridge the past and the present. He, he, he did it in a way that would make it kind of so quirky or kitschy, but at the same time kind of hold true to kind of the traditional morals and the values of, of the old Thai cinema, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, when you mentioned John Ford, you really get a in spots a John Ford vibe, some of the camera through the door into the expanse kind of shots. Um, that was one of my notes I had. And, you know, another guy I think of, too, with this, because I get kind of like a Chuck Jones vibe at times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is Stephen Chow. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they, there's yeah, there's all kinds of Stephen Chow in this. I mean, well, there's there's a bit in this, and uh, not to go off on a tangent, but I mean, where all the uh, the uh, the police are all in line, and they've got the goofy guy at the end with the teeth. Yeah. When the, the sergeant guy's talking to him, and he says, you know, you got to say goodbye to your wife. Why well, say goodbye to all my wives? How many wives? I got seven wives. Oh yeah. man, like that's the kind of goofy thing that Stephen Chow is kind of you know notorious for. Yeah. I mean, like there's. There's a lot of that in here, yeah, yeah, for sure. And and there's also that Stephen Chow has that kind of you know those that childhood uh, relationship that winds up coming back to present day. Exactly. There's that too. I mean, there's that big time, you know, where you get the guy that you know is actually good at heart, and he winds up on the wrong side of the tracks for you know one reason or another, and he's just trying to he, he's trying to play both sides, you know, he he's trying. To do what's right, but at the same time, he's trying to get out of a bad situation so it doesn't affect everybody else. Yeah, and that's exactly what I had thought as well. The exact same thing. There's, there's a purity beneath kind of the gruff exterior, uh, a sentimentality, which, you know, there, there has to be sort of an inherent sentimentality when you're hearkening back to a film, um, a, a country's film history in a way, you know, like he's, he's done with this. But, and our and it's so funny because our our main character his name is dumb yes and, uh, and dumb his uh, girlfriend her name is Rampui and and dumb and Rampui initially when they start as children he's kind of a servant son and Rampui is the daughter of the rich local socialite and initially you know uh, dumb starts out as kind of like her her young child servant. But then, you know, as they go on, they start to develop this kind of bond. And, you know, it, what's funny is he tells her the tale of this legend of a uh, of a bungalow. I'm sorry, of a, uh, a gazebo. And he tells her the story of the, a, wood, a woodsmith and how he had a relationship with a woman. And he was, uh, you know, it, it never worked out. So he built that in honor of their lost love. And it comes into play later on. There's so many things in this film where the past comes into play in the present. And isn't that really the whole – that's the film right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, Dom has a has a best friend there in the gang that he winds up with. And this guy's name is uh, Meshwan. And Meshwan has one of the greasiest little John Waters mustaches oh, in oh, cinema. Oh, man. <laughs> totally, man. And, and you know, and, and he he was the bad boy on the block until Dumb comes around, and then the 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 leader of the gang takes a real shining to Dumb, and that kind of you know browns his buddy off, and initially you know Dumb saves his bacon so many times you know from being bitten by a snake and in other instances Dumb saves him and then they wind up becoming literal blood brothers, 
but it's not enough for his buddy is his, his buddy becomes more and more, you know, uh, envious of dumb. And you know, as they go on, you, you, you wind up, uh, the dumb finds, you know, that his loyalties are questioned and that he, he's finding himself caught between a rock and a hard place trying to, you know, stay loyal to his gang. But at the same time, you know, yearning for Rampui. And, you know, when, when you find out why dumb joined the gang to begin with, you know, you understand completely. You know, it's not that he, he wanted to go off and be uh, deviant. It's, you know, there's a, there's a whole reason behind how he winds up in this gang that's goes back to classic Westerns. Yes. You know? And I think one of the things I really dig about this film is, well, A, I think it's a great title. I think it's one of the great titles in the history of cinema. Tears of the Black Tiger is very poetic and evocative. Um, and it is, listen, I'll say this. I do have some major problems with the film. Mm-hmm. But even if those problems bothered me more than they do, I would highly recommend everyone see this film because it is like nothing else you've seen. And like you said, when you called it a Tom Yung Gong, it is such a wonderful kind of hodgepodge of so many. And I think it really speaks to film and the beauty of the global village of film and how so many filmmakers from the world have been thrown into this pot to make this film. So I, I really love that. And I think that, it, it the fact that it's kind of this circy, um, and before I forget, you know who I would love to see do a Spanish version of this, like a Technicolor kind of far out Western, is Almodovar. Okay. Oh yeah. I was gonna. I thought you were gonna say Iglesias. Oh, Iglesias could do it too. Absolutely. But oh, oh yeah. I, I, I was, Almodovar. I was yeah, thinking yeah. him because of the, the the melodrama aspect, and he's a big Cirque fan, and a, you know. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, but um, I just think that this, you know, this harkens to a time. With kind of the technicolory kind of westerns like um, like the Searchers, for example, before oh, yeah. Italians kind of drained the color out of it and made everything kind of sweat and dirt. Right. And, you know you know what else this reminds me of too, and I forgot to mention this is um, is it King Who? King, King Who? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 man. Yeah. It reminds me of his kind of colorful epics, right? Uh, you know, in some ways too, and. and- in yeah. the beginning, I was talking about uh, Guy Madden. Yes. And I got some Guy Madden out of this, too, in the sense that a lot of the film is almost like a play mm-hmm. where they actually have painted backdrops behind oh, them. Oh, yeah. And they're beautiful. And it, right. But Madden, Madden does that a lot in his films where it's a period piece, but you really can't tell what time it is. There's that. And, and there's, and, yeah, the artifice um, it yeah. heightens the, the reality of the characters' lives. Sure. And I, I have to make – I have a confession to make, and I'm not really that big of a fan of Bollywood films, it be, primarily because I think that there's just too much emphasis on singing and dancing. I'm with you. And, you know, and I just – it just it just throws me off. But this film, I absolutely love the balance. I love all the songs in this film. I love, you know, that harmonica, the haunting harmonica, man. I mean, I just kept thinking of Chuck all the time. You know, every time I hear that harmonica, man, I just kept oh, thinking Oh, yeah, of, totally. You know, but uh, no, I, I just, I think this film is an absolute perfect balance with the music, with, you know, the action, with everything. And to be said, you know, as much as we, we say that this is, you know, a film that's primarily a romance, a tragic romance, there is some gnarly, nasty ass shit in this film in terms of violence. Yeah. I mean, there is some amazing, 
I would say it almost kind of ventures into Ricky O territory once or twice. Yeah, there's a few moments because of that. There's a, there's a shot where somebody gets shot in the head and you just see an exploding brain. You see the bullet going to the head, oh, and then yeah. you, just, you see the you know. And then there's another shot where somebody gets shot in the mouth, and you just see all their teeth explode. You know. I love that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, yeah, cartoony and gleefully kind of over the top. But yeah, both right. films this week have had an energy. I think one is more stripped down, and industrial one's more kind of elegant about it. Right. But, you know. Right. And uh, I was going to say too that you know the. Uh, but the, the one thing that I, I, I liked about it was that in this film, Sassanatyang, uh, I'm going to say that a lot in this because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that name down, dude. i got to say it, Sassanatyang. You're going to have me yeah, saying the right way soon. Yeah, well, Sassanatyang, he, he, he not only uses CGI for like all the bullet hits, he actually uses real squibs too. He mixes Yes, it. and he does a good job of it, especially considering right, right, the year. Right, right, right. Because, you know, the one thing is uh, when um, – when Takeshi did the remake of uh, of uh, Zatoichi, yeah, I really couldn't stand it because yeah, all the, the all, it was just ridiculous, man. It was it, it was too CGI. I just couldn't I couldn't get into it. It just threw me off. Yep. But this is a mix of practical and CGI, and it works so effectively. I mean, this is this is great. You know, like, I mean, I agree, a hundred percent. I feel like it really works well for the, especially considering. You know, CGI blood is something that even up until a year or two ago, we were talking about how often it was got done poorly. But this is a good mix of the two, certainly. Right, 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 right. And, you know, um, I think what what happens, too, is this film is so tongue in cheek. And like you were saying, going back to Stephen Chow as well, you know, the beginning of the film, you know, you've got dumb out, you know, outside of a of a of a interior of a house and there's a guy hiding behind you know uh, a dresser or something and you see him shoot a mirror and it bounces off something bounces off something else comes back and bounces off and kills the guy and then instead of just leaving it there they say did you get that and then they rewind and they show you how they did it how he bounced it off this bounced it off that like i mean there's there's that and then there's that that kind of cartoony over over the top you know, hyper hyper violence that um, Stephen Chow's films have in them. Oh yeah, and it it does really. I love that it kind of has that mythic gunfighter and the awareness of the mythic kind of gunfighter. It's you know, it'd make kind of a, a wild triple is uh, just in terms of color palettes and kind of far reaching. And I think too, I like that both your films this week were Asian films that had a lot of different influences. I should say, because mm-hmm. we talked about that with the first one, too, is um, because of the colors and what have you, uh, Argento's Inferno, Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel in this. Yeah. Or I was going to say a double bill of this in Haosu. Oh, man. Yeah. Like the colors and you know both. Of them. But I mean, I'm glad you brought up the colors because, you know, that's the one thing, like I was saying, when I saw this at 4 a.m. for the first time in the theater and everybody else, everybody was zombies. And when this film came on the screen. I mean, we're looking at avocado colors. We're looking at Pepto Bismol pink. Yeah. We're looking at. I mean, man, it, it, it's it, it's almost like like Liberace's, you know, guest house, man. Like it's, it's amazing. Just, it's incredible. Like just the colors, man. Like they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be put together like that, but they are. It's just this day glow. It, it's almost like those. Uh, uh, what do you what you might call it? Those 
the 1970s day glow posters you know the black light yeah, posters totally yeah it, it's like everything's like a big black light poster only there's no black light it's just full day you know mm-hmm. and uh pink houses and you know and everything's great like green suits pastels and, uh, and oh it's it's unbelievable i mean and you know what what's uh what's amazing with this film like I was saying in the beginning, how this was supposed to be a showcase for Thai filmmakers, Sassanatiang, he, what he did was he actually went and took this film and he digitized it and he ramped up everything. And then he actually went and put it back to film. Oh, wow. So, I mean, so they, they totally, totally made like everything, all the, they, they just went all the way. They just popped, man. They just made, pushed everything to the max, you know? Very cool. Let me ask you this. Because I feel like these two films I'm about to ask you are similar, and I also feel like their flaws are the same. Uh, mm-hmm. Sukiyaki Western or this? Which one do you prefer? This. By a far margin or? By a far margin, yeah. Okay. Because I feel like, for me, the, I, 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 would, uh, I would agree with you. I think this, at least because of yeah, the purity of heart, I think with this one kind of wins out for me. But I feel like the flaws that both films have is I think that they become a little too slavish with their insistence on homage at times instead of letting the right. film be its own film. Like I will say this. I think this is a great film. Everyone should see it. But the intentionally kind of stilted dialogue and the the middle section of this film is very, very, very flabby for me. And I know it's an homage to kind of sudsy melodrama, but because the actors are aware that they're delivering stilted dialogue, I feel like after a while, you don't care as much about the characters as you would if if you had organically built up a love for them. Only because it's by design that it's overwrought do you know what i mean right. so right that, right right you know but i think that, that's I think one thing what, i would say the problem is i think is that they were trying to please too many masters is that you know absolutely they wanted they wanted to basically you know give a nod and tribute to the dramas in the westerns of the past and that the older generations you know pine for and that this was a film where you know that you could watch with your your parents and then your parents would say, oh, yeah, we remember this We're so fondly, you know, and that they could reminisce. And to them, it was still fresh or, you know, or it held a place in their hearts. Whereas with all the violence and with all the kind of, you know, kitschy stuff, that was more kind of attractive to the younger generations, you know. And, and so like, like I was saying earlier, it's kind of a bridge. This film is a bridge between the yes. two generations in Thailand. And I think, Absolutely. you know. You've got you've got to really focus, um, you know, kind of choose one kind of target audience, you know. And I, agree. I think you you can't you can't just go you know like shooting uh, shooting off a shotgun, you know, and hoping to hit something. I mean, you you've got to really like know what this what this film was intended for, you know. Yes, and and like I said, that's sort of the I admire it for doing that, but I also think it's a little bit to the detriment of the film. Right. Um. I love too the kind of homage to the good, the bad, the ugly war, the civil war scene, which oh, yeah. they which they tie in with the wild bunch kind of fifty cal. At least I think it's Davy Mack will know or Ty or someone will know. Right. That, that big kind of fifty cal gun, you know, it's kind of the wild bunch and the good, the bad, the ugly in one scene. And um, I was going bazo- to go ahead. Sorry, one more word: bazookas. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that you know when when you get into later on in Thailand where. Uh, 
oh shit, man, I'm, I'm having a brain fart right now. What was the film with the gym, gymnasts? And it came out before Ongbak. Uh, uh, Born to Fight? To Kill. Born to Fight, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you see, when you see all the stunts in Born to Fight, and there's a bit in this where you see a guy actually flying out of a crow's nest after a grenade explosion. Yes. And you see, and that's real. Like you see that guy, like just lo- like he's launched in the air, and then the whole place goes up. I mean, you you know, you can see you know that there's little inklings of the beginning of uh, you know the whole Thai stunt industry. Absolutely. In in some of this, I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I and I love that how the guy throws the first grenade. He says, "Shit, it does didn't work. Let me do that again." Boom. <laughs> oh yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I thought the female lead was beautiful. I'll say that. I think oh, she yeah. was beautiful. Um, she was an Italian Colombian actress and model. Actually, interestingly, she was fluent in Thai. Um, a couple of things I want to mention before I forget: the ecstasy of gold riff. I, I smiled when I heard that. Um, yeah, yeah. I love the 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 scene at the urinal with the boots. Yeah, yeah. So I like something yeah. we've seen before. And I think, and I love, and, I, and maybe this is just me reaching, being an Argento fan, but the opera-ass gunfire um, yeah. where, where yeah, yeah. sadly, unlike Bruce Leroy, dude couldn't catch bullets with his teeth. Right, right. So, you know, that, right. and then uh, I think, too, I think the closing, I think it's the closing shot for this film really drove home the Cirque feel to me because this film, I think, closes with the camera pulling up from ground level up through the trees and then the, the frame is obscured by the leaves whereas all that heaven allows opens the exact opposite where the camera right. descends down from the trees through the leaves and into the front yard of um jane wyman's front yard so right I, right right you know, really cool man really really cool and I, I was gonna say one thing too that uh i'm not to give anything away but hole hole in the hat ah yes that, that was yes. just brilliant you know that, and, I, and it goes back to like what I was saying earlier about how things in the past wind up playing a part in things in the present. You know, Which, it's like these stu- stupid little things that you would you would think would be so inconsequential in another film that they use things, and you go, "Oh no way!" <laughs> totally, man. And again, it ties into the, the overall picture and the message of the film: right. the past right. into the future. So, uh, anything right. else you want to add before we jump off here, Timmer? I just wanted to say that, you know, when you asked me about, uh, you know, Sukiyaki Western and over this, um, you know, I love the characters in this film. I mean, I love Dom and Rampui and, you know, Dom's dad and, you know, just like all, all of it. I mean, you know, but, you know, when I saw Sukiyaki Western, there wasn't anybody that really, you know, spoke to me. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this this film to me, I mean, you know, there's not many films where, you know, I mean, the heavy cheese factor or getting, you know, all the, the old warm and fuzzy stuff. I mean, for me, it's usually like kind of like, you know, Wonderful Life or Grapes of Wrath and that kind of thing, like the old classics. But I, I get that kind of feeling with this film, too. It, it just gives me kind of a nostalgic, you know, warm fuzzy, you know, even though it isn't one of those older films. To me, it just kind of harkens back to like watching um, Roy Rogers with my grandfather or the Cisco kid on TV when I was just, you know, like a little whelp. I mean, I used to watch a lot of westerns with my grandparents, and uh, this kind of takes me back to you know remembering you know them singing the songs, you know, like and, and just those catchy little or the guy with the harmonica, even even before Bronson, you know, like I mean, though there was like that kind of traditional ode to the woman who you you, you know broke your heart or the woman who's away and the guy sitting under the tree. I mean, you know, it it just harkens back to the classic westerns. I mean, you know, I, I just I just love all that. It it just really spoke to me. Nice. Very nice. 
Okay, cool. Um, you want to get into make or breaks, MVTs, okay. and all that good stuff? Make or break, again, like I said, with uh, Tokyo Fist, it's the beginning. Like yeah. This film starts with a bang, no pun intended. And, uh, you know, this film just pops right from the beginning, and, and it, it'll it'll let you know exactly what, it, you know, you're in store for. And um, for MVT, I would say the colors. Mm-hmm. The colors, man. I mean, I've never seen any other film, period, that has a color scheme like this. That's yeah, something else. I, I, I've never seen another film that has, like I say, like any this just this kind of color scheme just shouldn't work. I mean, it's just you know, but it does. It's it's just insane. Um, for a score, I I would say yeah, you're right that this film does have it does drag out in the middle, and of course, you know, it, it's got a lot a lot to play with there. I would say I want to give this an eight point seven five. Nice, very nice. Okay, so for me. Not a break per se, because this film isn't broken. It's well worth everyone's time. Even if it doesn't completely work for people, I think they'll admire enough about it that it won't be a failure for for anyone who really loves film. To kind of do that Easter egg hunt of, oh, this is Ford, this is Cirque, this is uh, this guy, this is Nicholas Ray, you know. Um, But I think the middle, the melodrama, like I feel like you could cut about 30 minutes out of this film and you'd be fine because I think we got enough – backstory and romance with the bookends of the middle to kind of convey what they were going for, especially when they weren't going to really plumb the depths emotionally because it was more homage than anything, you know? Um, But my MVT, I'm going to expand a little bit on what you said with the colors. I'm going to say the whole aesthetic itself. It is one of the best looking films you're going to see. And I just, again, that we can live in an age where you can get this, this kind of uh, pastel colored tie, Western is amazing. Um, my score is definitely lower than yours, but again, I still think that people need to see it. Um, if for no other reason than just do the Easter egg hunt and and see when the Thai film industry really got the ball rolling and could show you know what they could do with with of course what had to be a, a minuscule budget compared to what uh, a lot of the Western countries were working with at the time. So right. my score is a seven point five out of ten. And this needs a Blu-ray, and it would be a day one purchase. Right, absolutely. Um, I was going to say one thing to you, Will, that I find sometimes maybe that it might be a detriment for us being, uh, you know, such rabid cinephiles is that, you know, sometimes I find myself, you know, just like you said, you know, like an Easter egg hunt, you know, just ripping all the, uh, you know, seeing that, oh, yeah, that's from this, and that's from that, and that's from that. And sometimes I have to kind of, you know, restrain myself. Oh, and just but say, I, I mean that in a good way, I should say. No, no, yeah, you know, yeah no, yeah. I know it's in a good way, but I just yeah. sign, like, whether whether it's positive or negative, I find sometimes that well, I think we're, we all kind of catch ourselves sometimes going, wait a minute, man, just sit back and watch it, you know? <laughs> I mean, just enjoy it, yeah. Right, 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 because, I mean, that was like the first time I seen this film. I'm like, wait a minute, there's Django, there's this, there's that. Like, yeah, 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 like, I did that too. But then the second time I watched this, I was just like, okay, just watch it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure, yeah. for yeah. sure. Oh, good stuff. So, Timur, it was shorter than we would have liked, certainly, but we were able to get it done, and uh, I want to thank you, as always, for yeah, I'd like to thank thank you guys, man. I mean, my pleasure, you know, and... I, you know, I mean, you know, I value our friendship above all, man, and just being oh, able to come on here and talk with you and uh, Rick or I, you know, yeah, and, man. Uh, 
Yeah. It's it's always fantastic. It's always a pleasure. And uh, we're definitely going to get you back on. Maybe we'll try to get you on because, like I said, we got some commitment stuff coming up. And that's going to take time. You know, we're in mid-March now. And we're, uh, let's, let's try to get you on before June so we can kick off the summer season proper because you know you program the hell out of this show you're batting a thousand here my friend as as we knew you would so let's get you back on here pick two more uh, mind melters or crayola melters and uh, it's it's hard you know it's hard because i know like you know considering you know what you guys have seen already and you know what your tastes are i just you know yeah, but you know how to pick them, man, and I think you're exposing people. I think you picked, you programmed really well because you've picked two films that are deserving of more love that have fallen through the cracks because of when they came out and their accessibility. So, right, we should say I think you can rent this film on, I think on was it Google Video or Amazon Prime right. or something? And I think I think YouTube YouTube is uh, putting it up now because oh, for rent new, for rent yeah yeah for their new service you know that for rent yeah. yeah. So of course, uh, good Tokyo stuff. Tokyo Fist, Tokyo Fist is put out by Manga. Yeah. If you can find the, if you can still find the DVD release of that. Yeah, no, definitely, man. So right. yeah, thank you again, my friend. I hope you have a good evening, and uh, we will talk very, very soon. Uh, and as always, there's only one thing left. Oh, let me talk about what we're doing next week. Actually, right. Uh, next week, we are very pleased. You know what? I'll I'll save it. I, we gotta we gotta exciting new sponsor for the show and uh rick and i'll announce it at the beginning of the show so i you know we can do it together since it's our baby so um we got three new sponsors uh and actually four technically um so we're gonna be we're gonna be a, a heavy hitter next week uh so stay tuned to see which uh cult label has given us the pleasure of uh, reviewing their catalog so uh, with that my friend there is one thing left to say Adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.